from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Salahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 11th. Today, what the president's allies are saying behind the scenes, Biden's plans for the climate, and how to reclaim your sense of time. So, Josh Dossi, White House reporter for The Post, I am asking this as a serious question. Are we seeing the beginnings of an attempted coup in this country? Well, it's hard to say. If you talk to folks around the president, they say no. They say that he just wants to keep pushing this for a few more days, that he wants to delegitimize the election so he never has to say publicly that he lost and that he will leave uh, on January 20th unless some sort of massive widespread fraud evidence emerges. But obviously there's a lot of concern out there from Democrats and Republicans alike that what has been a time-tested tradition in this country that when the election's over, there's usually a quick transfer of power. There's an official ascertainment of the results uh, from the United States government. So the transition can begin. The government has to formally ascertain the result. That's a specific term. And that's not happening. So there's, there's signs of concern for many people. But if you talk to folks around the president, they say there is not going to be a coup. I guess time will tell. So what are the ways in which we're starting to see Republican leadership really stand behind President Trump and support him? You know, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is saying to let this have time and to see what happens with the legal challenges and is not calling Joe Biden the winner. In the United States of America, all legal ballots must be counted. Any illegal ballots must not be counted. The process should be transparent or observable by all sides. And the courts are here to work through concerns. Our institutions are actually built for this. We have the system in place to consider concerns. And President Trump is 100% within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said yesterday, some of his allies would say he joked, but he said there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right. We're, we're ready. Most of these Republican senators, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, for example, asked if he's congratulated Joe Biden. He said, what would we congratulate him for? There's nothing to congratulate him for. Most of them so far have stayed behind President Trump, at least for now. And they say they want to see how this plays out. But there have been few cracks in the Republican armor so far around him. There have been a couple senators, uh, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, that have put out statements congratulating Vice President Biden. There have been, you know, some notable statements from George W. Bush, like a former president, and from other Republican leaders. But most of the party has stuck with the president and has been unwilling to say that he lost yet. And it's interesting because much of the rest of the world is moving on. The foreign leaders are calling Joe Biden in rapid succession. Germany, Britain, France, all of our allies are acknowledging that 
Biden is the president-elect, but the Republican Party, for the most part, has not done that yet. Uh, what they will say privately, and I'm, I'm not offering this as a defense, I'm just saying this is what my reporting indicates, is that they're giving him some time, they're letting him see what the evidence is, that they're putting together some of these suits, and if, and if it goes nowhere, that they will soon call for him to leave office uh, publicly. But but is that actually going to happen? Like, is there going to be a world in which a week or two weeks from now, then all these Republicans who have backed President Trump are going to say publicly, OK, it's done. We accept it. Like, we realize that the, that President Trump is in the wrong here. Well, I think it depends what he does, uh, Martine. I mean, what they what they envision and what they want him to do is to publicly acknowledge himself that he's leaving office so they do not have to condemn or criticize him. But Right now, the Republicans around him, you know, I have not spoken to anyone in my reporting who thinks that there's evidence of widespread fraud that thinks that he has much of a case yet. Really? Even even among the people who are saying publicly that they think there is? No, I mean, we put that in the story today and on, on the front page today. I mean, the RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, uh, some of Mark Meadows, some of the president's top advisors say that unless they have a lot more evidence that they, you know, don't see the case to make right now. Uh, but they're trying to find evidence. So then what do you think is the incentive here for Republicans to really stand behind President Trump if he's not going to be president in two months? I mean, it sounds like so many of them are just trying to placate him, make him feel better, wait for him to sort of accept the results. But doesn't that come at a real cost of watching these people publicly undermine our democratic process? Well, sure. But for a lot of the Republicans, I mean, he got 70 million votes. He's still the leading kingmaker in the Republican Party. They want him to go to Georgia and help these two Senate candidates there so that the Republican Party can keep the control of the Senate. They don't want to be in a public war with him right now. A lot of these figures are not ready to break with him yet. And you can say it's undermining democracy, but their calculations right now are still not to to break with him. I also want to talk briefly about... President-elect Joe Biden and how he has responded to all of this. I think that some people have been surprised the extent to which he seems kind of reticent to really engage in what the president is saying and the fact that the president isn't acknowledging or uh, officially conceding the election. Um, We've seen a few more comments from him in the last couple of days, but it still feels like he has this attitude of just like not wanting to give it much oxygen. What is your sense of Biden in all this? Well, what's what's a benefit for him giving it oxygen? What can he do about it? What's the benefit of giving it oxygen? Well, I think some people want to see him kind of be more vociferous about like, I won, he lost, the president needs to to take the usual steps that 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 presidents take in this moment. And and what what is that going to make the president do? Yeah, I guess that's the answer to the, to the question, right? I mean, what he's saying is I'm going to be president in two months. We're picking our team. We're picking our transition. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, him saying that gets him nothing. I mean, it's not like he's going to say out loud publicly, he needs to step down and Trump's going to say, okay, good, we'll do that now. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just he's just moving along and, and doing his thing, understanding that the days are limited of Donald Trump's time in office. I also wonder if part of it is that if Biden talks extensively about this or, or really tries to criticize the president in, in a very public way, that it becomes kind of a like a he said, he said, that it becomes a political battle and that Biden is just thinking in some ways, like maybe trying to to act as a president is of like not wanting to make this a political battle. And it may further entrench Donald Trump. I mean, it may anger him more. It may cause him to, you know, even push this off more aggressively. I mean, 
for for Biden, I think Biden's whole calculation has been throughout his run in office that he's not going to get in every tit for tat battle with Donald Trump. And his people would say to you that it's worked. He won the popular vote by five million. He won a lot of these states. He's going to be the president elect. And, you know, if you get in the mud with Donald Trump, that normally doesn't end well for you. That That would be their argument. So we've seen over the last few days, um, President Trump also firing some top officials, um, in some cases swapping out people in certain roles, which seems like a strange move in the two months before his term is over. Can you talk me through some of those changes in high-profile roles and what do you think the president's strategy is there? Well, one of it is revenge. The president has been mad at Mark Esper, his former defense secretary since June, when Esper broke with the president on the Insurrection Act and doing it in these in these cities where there was unrest. And when Esper criticized the famous uh, walk to St. John Church where they cleared peaceful protesters and the president held the Bible up, uh, Esper was critical of those two things. And, and the president has wanted to fire him uh, ever since, but he's been talked out of it. The president's also frustrated that the Defense Department has been reluctant to carry out some of his troop withdrawals in various countries uh, that he has often wanted to do them abruptly and, and deal the officials have pushed back. And we're expecting a number of, of other senior personnel changes. Mm. Folks who are said to be potentially on the chopping block include CIA Director Gina Haspel, uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray. There are a number of folks that the president has been long displeased with, but has kept in office basically just because of the election. And now there's a higher chance that, that they get removed. And he's just going to fire them because... He just wants to, and he wants to do it by the time his term is over? Right. He has 70 days left, and uh, I think he will make lots of news and make lots of waves in the 70 days. This is not going to be a quiet exit. But for the many Americans who are looking at the news, seeing how the president is talking, seeing how people around the president are talking— and and thinking that, like, there is a real chance that that the president is actually trying to— lie his way into a second term in office. What are the mechanisms that could prevent that? Or like, what are the emergency breaks here? Well, over the next few weeks, I mean, individual states certify their results. And most of these states have said that they do not believe that there was fraud. They have no evidence of widespread fraud. And they're going to certify their results. And then the Electoral College will vote. I mean, right now, we're in a time where the writing is on the wall, according to you know, all of the, the vote tallies and the experts who study these things. But the the official results have not been yet certified and they will be, you know, certified over the next few weeks. So we expect that President Trump will actually listen to that, that when that moment comes, states are officially certifying the results of the election, the Electoral College is meeting in, in mid-December, that that will be enough for President Trump to say, OK, I recognize. I, I, mean, I mean, no. I mean, no. No one around him thinks he's ever going to stand up and say, I concede, I lost, Joe Biden is a winner. The president is not inclined to ever publicly say he lost the election. And if anyone is expecting him to say that, they just are that that's just not going to happen. That is very unlikely to ever happen. Has he ever publicly stood up and said he lost anything in his whole life, even when all signs showed that he was losing? <laughs> 
So there have to be other formal processes of a, of a democracy that, you know, moves things along. I mean, everyone that I talk to in Trump world never expects him to publicly say he, he lost, but they do expect that he will leave office on January 20th. And as someone, you know, very close to him said to me the other day, he's going to always say this election was stolen. It was rigged. It was taken from me. But, you know, there's a difference in whether he publicly says I lost or not and whether he weaves and there is a transfer of power. Josh Dossie covers the White House for The Post. As someone who has covered energy and the environment for the duration of the Trump presidency, what differences do you already see in the attitudes and priorities of President Trump and of President-elect Joe Biden? It is a huge difference, one would argue. They're almost polar opposites of each other. We have an incoming president who has described climate change, climate warming, the global warming is an existential threat to humanity. And has pledged it's one of his top four priorities while in office. We have a moral obligation to deal with it. And we're told by all the leading scientists in the world, we don't have much time. We're going to pass the point of no return within the next eight to 10 years. And that's an enormous change from President Trump, who questioned whether climate change posed a threat at all to America and the globe and worked to undo any existing policies that were tackling climate change. I'm Juliette Eilprin, Senior National Affairs Correspondent for The Washington Post, covering energy and environment. So it's one thing to just say that climate change is an existential threat to humanity. But in terms of actually addressing that problem, what are we seeing so far of Joe Biden's plans? As a candidate, Joe Biden had a very elaborate and ambitious climate plan, which actually became more ambitious over the course of the campaign. So when you look at where he ended up, he put forward an agenda that aimed to spend $2 trillion transforming this nation and shifting it off of fossil fuels. And on top of that, called for strict federal action and regulations on the sources that are driving greenhouse gas emissions in this country. And so that's everything from drilling on federal land and offshore to uh, tighter tailpipe emission standards for the cars and trucks that everyone drives. Uh, He, in fact, went so far to say that he was in favor of banning all new leasing and permitting on federal lands and in federal waters. So You know, while certainly there have been politicians in the past who have called for greater action, there's no presidential candidate in history who laid out as significant a plan to tackle climate change and reduce greenhouse gases. 
But I think it's also important to acknowledge the the magnitude and scope of the problem that he's dealing with, because not only is there so much that needs to be done in order to prevent disastrous effects from climate change, and that in and of itself is an incredibly ambitious goal, but we're even further from that target than we started out four years ago, because so much of those benchmarks and those actions were either held off on or completely reversed by the Trump administration. You're absolutely right. The scientific warnings have just become more dire. The greenhouse gas emissions as a whole have gone up. The Washington Post itself has analyzed that we already have 10% of the globe that has warmed by 2 degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, which is identified as the global tipping point for catastrophic climate change. So I, I think it's fair to say that the United States has never cut its emissions in pace with what scientists have said is required to avert dangerous planetary warming. That is just a fact. And in fact, when you look forward, the U.S. should be cutting its emissions more than 7% a year, every year, to reach you know, the target that scientists have laid out. And even under Joe Biden's most ambitious climate change plan, it is entirely unclear whether the U.S. will meet that benchmark. So then in terms of the different parts of the plan that Biden is proposing, which parts of those plan are kind of like flipping a switch where they could have immediate tangible impacts and which ones are still going to be very slow to really have an effect? The United States exited the Paris Climate Agreement the day after the presidential election, and President-elect Biden can rejoin it on his first day in office and is expected to do so. So in terms of restarting global climate diplomacy, that's one of the easiest boxes to check off. There are other actions that we could see right away from Joe Biden that would include things like We could see an executive order instructing agencies and departments across the government to formulate climate action plans where they would identify what are ways they could maximize reductions in carbon emissions. You could see him, for example, restore protected areas that were shrunk by President Trump. And for example, if he restores the original boundaries to national monuments in Utah and elsewhere, there are a range of things, but you're absolutely right. Some some of the policy reversals would take, you know, potentially years to enact. So how achievable are these goals that Biden is laying out? There are certainly a number of obstacles that exist right now that would interfere with Biden achieving his climate objectives. So To name a few, we have to see what happens in the Georgia runoff for the Senate uh, with those two seats. But if, for example, the Democrats fail to gain both of those seats, you will face a, a Senate that is opposed to many of his objectives. On top of that, you already have conservative attorneys general across the country who are ready to reprise the playbook they executed under the Obama administration. They will challenge many of the executive actions that 
president-elect Biden will take. And they now are bolstered by the fact that there are more President Trump appointees on the federal bench who might be more inclined to rule in their favor than they were even a few years ago when they did manage to halt some of Barack Obama's most ambitious climate policies. I also wonder how this is going to work out, considering that one of Biden's other biggest priorities going into office is dealing with COVID. And I think that there is this narrative that is not completely true, that that making uh, environmental improvements or making improvements to, to things related to climate change comes with economic costs and that there is a concern that maybe now is not the time with so many Americans out of work, with the economy really struggling, to be making those big changes uh, because of climate change. But but do you think that these goals are going to come into conflict at some point? I think that there's a significant intersection between these goals in the sense of any stimulus bill, for example, which inevitably there will be in Congress, could, depending on how it's crafted, provide support, especially when you're talking about rebuilding infrastructure, things like that, where where you can actually devote the federal money that you want to help spur the economy to projects that support renewable energy. In that sense, you could see them syncing up. It is clear that this incoming administration sees economic stimulus as an opportunity to advance its clean energy and climate goals. They do not see a conflict. And I think it is worth noting that Joe Biden oversaw the 2009 stimulus bill when, again, a Democratic administration came in in the midst of an economic crisis. And that was the biggest U.S. investment in clean energy in history at the time. And so this is a strategy that Joe Biden has championed in the past and seems ready to do again. Juliet Alprin is a senior national affairs correspondent for The Post, covering energy and the environment. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Now, one more thing. I think like a lot of people, I found my sense of time going haywire um, way back in March and April as lockdown happened everywhere. But even after like official lockdown opened and we didn't have like stay at home orders, I kept finding that I still felt kind of adrift in time. Like I had some kind of new routine, but it still didn't feel very intentional. I was kind of haphazard and all the sorts of daily routines that I'd had, just commuting, going to work, and anything that distinguished Monday from Tuesday from Wednesday, they're all gone now. That's audience editor Stephen Johnson. 
Stephen has been reporting on the concept of time and how the pandemic has skewed our perception of time. There's objective time, time as it actually passes, and then subjective time, how you experience it. And that sense of time is really malleable. That's the way one psychologist put it. It can be affected by factors like stress, like mental health. Depression and anxiety are known to change how you experience time. Some psychologists even think of them as disorders of time. Novelty, how unusual events are. All of those things can change how quickly or slowly time passes for you in the moment. I think a common experience is that during the pandemic, time drags in the moment. And then in retrospect, it seems like it flew right by. Like to me, March and April seem like they were almost yesterday. I can't really think of what's happened since then just because I haven't really made many new memories or had new experiences in that whole time. The main ways that psychologists told me to recover a sense of time had a lot to do with routine. And at first that kind of grated against me. It it felt wrong to put more routine into my days, especially at the beginning when we were being told, no, you don't have to write King Lear. You don't have to be productive all the time. But the more they talked about it, the more it became clear. It wasn't about productivity at all. It wasn't about efficiency. It's really about resilience. It's about knowing that challenges are still going to come your way, that we're still in this period of national tragedy, but that you feel capable of dealing with those challenges as they come. You have even some tiny areas under control, even if it's as small as going outside to take a walk. So psychologists walked me through the ways that I could add meaning and a sense of purpose back into my days. So for me, that ended up looking like making these new anchor points, um, new practices that would give me a sense of the future and inject some sense of meaning back into my day. Tuesdays, I would call family. That was a kind of social connection that brought me closer to my loved ones and reminded me of the things that were important to me. Wednesdays, I ended up setting aside to literally do nothing. Um, so I just put my phone away. I light a candle. I like basically look at the wall and my roommates walk in and give me weird looks. But I actually started looking forward to those things because it felt like a real kind of mental rest. Um, Thursdays, I set aside for volunteering or some kind of service. And those kinds of community ties are a really strong factor in resilience and can help you regain that sense of time. Routine keeps you from losing time. It keeps time from kind of slipping through your fingers. Um, But new and meaningful experiences make that time fulfilling. So I know that every week is going to have some kind of slot for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's what I do with those times that might be a little different. Stephen Johnson is an audience editor at The Post. He's also the author of a new newsletter about this idea of time and how to reclaim your routine. It's called What Day Is It? We'll put a link to subscribe in today's show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you found yourself relying on The Washington Post and this podcast for your election news, now is a great time to become a subscriber to The Post. One year of digital access to The Post usually costs about $100. But if you go to postreports.com offer, you can get a special deal just for Post Reports listeners, a one-year subscription for just $29. To sign up, go to postreports.com offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.